1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
2: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and good evening to to our online audience. We're here this evening to debate a topic which has already been much in the news this week with the publication yesterday of a paper by the Centre for Policy Studies, but then it's a topic which is rarely far from the headlines and which regularly divides opinion, that of assisted suicide. The motion this evening is, Assisted suicide should be legalised. The terminally ill should have the legal right to be helped. To end their lives. Each speaker has up to nine minutes to make his or her case. Um, I've got a stopwatch somewhere. Um, I'll get it out in a minute. But I'm going to introduce you to our first speaker to propose the motion. She's Emily Jackson, professor of law at the LSE. Her special interests are in reproductive and end-of-life issues, and she's currently writing the in-favour half of a book called *Debating Euthanasia*. So her arguments are no doubt well-honed. Emily Jackson.
3: Thank you, Sue, and thank you for the very kind invitation to talk to you this evening. I'm speaking here in favour of the legalisation of assisted suicide, but I think it's really important to clarify exactly what I'm for in this context. I am certainly not for immediate access to assisted suicide on demand. My argument is a much more modest one. I believe that we owe it to people who experience unrelievable and irreversible suffering, and importantly also to those who worry that this lies ahead of them to do all that we can to alleviate their fear and distress. Now, this is not an argument in favour of death. On the contrary, I think an effective assisted dying law could extend and enhance the lives of people currently facing the prospect of a prolonged and distressing decline. Now, what do I mean by that? Currently in the UK, patients whose fear of dying is overwhelming can, if they can afford it and are well enough to travel, visit the Dignitas Clinic in Zurich or if they're fit enough, they can kill themselves before they become incapacitated. Now, in both cases, this means they die sooner than they would if they had access to assisted dying in the UK. And it inevitably means that they don't have some of the most basic components of what we might call a good death, being at home um, with the people you love most around you. It's also really important to note at the outset that there's a really critical difference between my position and that of the opponents of this motion, because I agree with them that a life which is full of suffering can nevertheless have tremendous meaning and value. They would clearly not seek an assisted death for themselves, and that's a decision which I would both respect and admire. But having seen people suffer at the end of their lives, I'm fairly sure, though nobody can ever be completely sure, that I would not want to continue living once life had permanently lost any meaning for me. Yet the opponents of this motion's view is that I must endure a dying process which fills me with horror. So I wouldn't force assisted death upon them, but they would force me to endure a death which I would find intolerable. So the starting point really is that there is, among a subset of patients suffering from conditions like cancer and motor neurone disease, a strong and understandable desire for more control over the dying process that lies ahead of them. Now, it's often suggested that palliative care is a much better solution to the problems faced by these people than helping them to die. And it's undoubtedly true that palliative medicine specialists are now really very well equipped to manage pain. Inadequate pain management for most people ought to be a thing of the past. But the evidence suggests that what people fear most towards the end of life is seldom pain. The surveys from Oregon and the Netherlands consistently show that people's principal motivations for seeking assisted death relate to loss of autonomy, cited by 97% in Oregon in 2009, loss of dignity, cited by 92%, and loss of the ability to do the things that make life enjoyable, which was 86%. Inadequate pain control or fear of it was cited by only 10%. It's also important to be absolutely clear that not everyone experiences the loss of control that prompts some patients' requests for assisted dying as intolerably distressing. Some people who are profoundly incapacitated and dependent gain considerable meaning and value from their lives and they deserve to be treated with the utmost respect. My point is that it's the patient, him or herself, who's the expert here. And the fact that extremely ill people have different views about what it means for their lives to go well or for what it means for their lives to meet a minimum threshold of tolerability is a reason to respect that diversity rather than to force those who would prefer an assisted death to instead have to endure the suffering they are desperate to avoid. So if someone asks their doctor for help in dying, of course it's right to see what else could be done to relieve their distress. They may be suffering from treatable depression, their pain control may be inadequate, or they may be isolated and need more social support. My argument is that it's acceptable for assisted dying to be the last option on that palliative and social support menu. When we can't do any more to relieve someone's distress, we shouldn't abandon them to a dying process which they find unbearable. Now, the distinguished philosopher James Rachels asked us to imagine a choice between two deaths. If we opt for the first death, we die quietly and painlessly at the age of 80 after being given a lethal injection. The second death involves us dying a few days later, at the age of 80 plus a few days, but from an affliction which is so distressing and frightening that we spend those last few days howling like a dog with our family standing helplessly by. Now, I'm prepared to believe that some people's religious faith would lead them to prefer the second option. That's obviously absolutely fine. But surely the vast majority of us, basing our decision upon our own preferences, would opt for the first death. And if the first death is so obviously preferable, surely there's something wrong with the legal system which absolutely forbids the painless death and insists upon allowing only the terrifying one. Now, of course, palliative care and the hospice movement have made the process of dying less institutionalised and more comfortable for millions of people. Every patient should obviously have the right to high-quality palliative and hospice care. But while many people's pain and distress can be effectively managed and alleviated, the core, really, of my argument is the claim that this is not universally the case. I'm fairly sure that there will come a time in my own life when I don't want to suffer any more and would prefer an assisted death, but I'm not allowed to have one. And that strikes me as a gross interference with my right to make the most important decisions about my life for myself. If I want an assisted death, I would be saying that my life has ceased to have value to me. That's an entirely different thing from saying that I no longer have any value as a human being. Many opponents of legalisation argue that to permit assisted death would be to devalue the sick, the elderly and the dying. But I think that's illogical. I really respect Debbie Purdy's view that there may come a time when she's had enough... And wants to be helped to die. But I don't think that means when that time comes she will cease to be an extremely valuable human being. Opponents of assisted dying have the right to say, this is not for me, I want to live until the bitter end. And if I'm a doctor, I want no part in helping patients to die. They do not have the right to impose that preference on me.
2: Emily Jackson, thank you very much indeed. Our first speaker against the motion is Alex Carlyle, QC. He's a practising barrister. He was a Lib Dem MP for 14 years and now sits in the House of Lords. Along the way, he was the first MP to campaign for the rights of transsexuals. Earlier this year, he became the Joint Chair of Living and Dying Well, a public policy think tank set up to look into the arguments surrounding exactly this debate. Alex Carlyle.
4: Well, first of all, can I say how grateful I am to Intelligence Squared and to the Evening Standard for giving us the opportunity of a debate in front of such a large and interested audience tonight. I recognize that this is a subject that provokes great emotion, but I would say to you at the outset that we should not look upon the phrase assisting suicide as a euphemism because it can be seen as a euphemism. There is a danger of that. If somebody assists suicide, the reality is that that person is helping to kill another human being. And in law, it's a form of homicide. And what we're doing here is talking about legalizing a form of homicide. Now, my starting point, I hope, is an entirely ethical one, that it is wrong to take or assist in taking another person's life unless it is permitted by law. Now, the starting point in law, actually, is this heavily tatty volume that I've been carrying with me for about the last 30 years. I used to cite it to judges at one time, and they used to look at me as though I was talking a foreign language. It's the European Convention on Human Rights, but these days it's something that's cited daily to judges in almost every part of the law. And Article 2 makes it absolutely clear, and this is an unqualified right, that nobody shall be deprived of his life intentionally, save in very clear circumstances. And uh, the clear circumstances are set out as uh, in defending oneself, I am summarizing now, defending oneself or other people in face of really serious danger, or in a war defined as such under the law of war. I don't know how many people have read Article 2 in this room, but it repays reading, for there are no exceptions. And indeed, Debbie Purdy's case created no exceptions. She won her case, and it was reflected faithfully in the guidelines made by the DPP. So I would argue that what we have is a law that is true to the European Convention, that protects weak and vulnerable people, that protects those who may have changed their mind about this issue uh, without the danger of dying without it being clear that they've changed their mind. And it protects those who are uh, feeling that they're a burden on their family and a burden on the resources of their families. And so far, Parliament, insofar as it has been asked to judge this law, has rejected it comprehensively. I'm puzzled by the approach that's been taken because nobody in the House of Commons has taken up this issue for as a private bill near the top of the agenda so it could be fully debated and taken through all its processes in the House of Commons. The Joffe bill um, was defeated to the extent that the House of Lords didn't want to hear any more of it by nearly 150 votes to 100, and the Faulkner Amendment was defeated in the House of Lords by 194 to 141. And let me tell you the reasons why I think in huge debates and uh, very interesting debates, those proposals were rejected. First of all, it is assumed that doctors would be the judges. Now, there are two points about that. The first is that a lot of doctors don't want to be the judges of whether a person should have assisted suicide. And therefore, you have a self-selecting group of doctors, some of whom, of course, most of whom are extremely honourable people, but they select themselves because they are the ones who believe in the process. Secondly, one has to be realistic and say that doctors are no more guaranteed to be capital G good than any other group of people in society. They're no more good as a group than lawyers or plumbers, Or uh, uh, refuse collectors, they are a group of people with particular skills. And I do not know where this myth of the reliability of a self-selecting group of doctors comes from. It certainly hasn't been proved to be reliable. Um, The reality is that, first of all, a law permitting assisted suicide won't happen because it's contrary to Article 2, of the uh, European Convention on Human Rights. Whatever the Dutch and the Belgians are doing, apparently people in those countries have not fully challenged what is permitted there, but it would be challenged here. Secondly, it's completely contrary to our legal tradition and concepts. We simply do not accept that one member of the public should be involved in killing another member of the public, save in the circumstances I've set out. And in my judgment, and I would urge this upon you, there is no system of law which anyone has been able to devise which would ensure that the vulnerable, the sick, the disabled, and those who change their mind would be protected. Let's leave things just as they are.
2: Lord Carlisle, thank you very much indeed. Um, our second speaker to the motion is Debbie Purdy. Debbie was diagnosed with MS in 1995 when she was 31. She wants to choose when she wants to die, preferably with the help of her husband. Her campaign prompted the DPP to publish new guidelines clarifying the circumstances in which an individual might not face prosecution for helping a loved one to die. And her campaign uh, for... Dying to be made legal in the UK as per our motion continues. Debbie Purdy.
5: Thank you. you. I'm not going to get to the lectern because you wouldn't be able to see me, and I'm far too attractive to be kept behind a lectern. (laughs) Honestly, Um, I'm not really sure where to start because the thing is I don't believe doctors have got a right to make a decision about the quality of my life and I don't believe anybody else has got the right to decide the value of my life and whether it should come to an end I believe I have that decision and at the moment the law is a mess The law states that to aid, abet, counsel or procure the suicide of another is illegal and punishable by 14 years in jail. So far, the people who have been assisted to go to Switzerland, for instance, to make use of their laws, nobody has been prosecuted. That doesn't mean to say that nobody will be, but nobody has yet. The law that we currently are governed by was introduced in 1961. And I think it is a progressive, good, intelligent law for 1961. The one that made suicide, it ceased to be illegal, but still said that assisting a suicide was. Since 1961, what's changed? Homosexuality has been legalised, not made compulsory, I hasten to add. Abortion has been legalised... But not made compulsory. We've had the war in Vietnam. Nelson Mandela was arrested, charged, and spent 27 years in jail before being freed to become the first black president of South Africa. 1961 is a long time ago. And I think our our law, our politicians, have got a duty to us as citizens to look at the laws and make sure that they represent our best interests. In this century, and not to say that whatever we've got is probably okay, because it's out of date. When this law was passed, if you were told you had cancer, you pretty much had a death sentence. Now that's not true. The majority of people who are told they have cancer have access to amazing palliative care, amazing care by doctors who can help them live longer and live productive lives and after, I think it's five years or six years of being free of cancer, be told they are cured. That I'm not saying that we should ignore that or go back on that. What I'm saying is that as members of this society, we have a right to be taken seriously that our views on our own lives should be considered as... Important. It's rational that if some people find that certain situations are beyond their tolerance, it is possible that we could have the same symptom and Emily finds it completely bearable and completely acceptable and that I find it unbearable and unacceptable and it should be our choice, not doctors, not family members, not... Um, a doctor, not a politician, not a member of parliament, but ourselves who make that decision. We have to be prepared to make a law that is acceptable in the United Kingdom in the 21st century, not count on Belgium or Switzerland or Holland or Oregon or anywhere else, but what is acceptable to us.
2: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Our second speaker against the motion is Patrick Stone, Paddy to his friends. He's Macmillan Reader in Palliative Medicine at St George's University of London. He was awarded his MD in cancer-related fatigue and his special interests include prognostication in advanced cancer and quality of life assessment. Paddy Stone.
0: Good evening. Let me start by explaining that I am a specialist in palliative medicine. I am a hospice doctor. Every year, I look after approximately a thousand patients who are dying from advanced diseases such as cancer, motor neurone disease, or dementia. If the opinion polls are to be believed, the majority of the people in this country, and presumably the majority of people in this auditorium, are in favour of assisted suicide for the terminally ill. And yet, those same opinion polls repeatedly show that the overwhelming majority of palliative care doctors like myself, are opposed. And what I want to do this evening is try to explain to you some of the reasons why that might be the case. I think the first thing to state is that although I look after many, many patients who are dying, very few of them actually request assistance with dying. And those requests that I do receive, as Professor uh, Emily Jackson alluded to, are often motivated by fear, fear of what the future might hold. And the commonest fear that I encounter is that patients will be subjected to a burdensome medical intervention at the end of their lives, that they will be put on drips, that they will be ventilated, that they will be tube-fed. These are the things that people are frightened of. So the first thing that I say to patients is that there is no need for them to seek an assisted death, there is no need for them to campaign to change the law. They are quite within their rights to refuse any life-prolonging treatment that they choose to do so if they are terminally ill, or indeed at any stage of their life. But since the 2005 Mental Capacity Act, they can go further than that. They can write legally binding advanced refusals of treatment. They can even appoint lasting powers of attorney to trusted relatives or friends to make these decisions on their behalf. There is no need for anybody in this country to be exposed to meddlesome medical intervention at the end of their lives. The second most common fear that I encounter is a fear of pain or a traumatic death, as has been alluded to. I think as a palliative care doctor, I find this particularly hard because I've looked after thousands of patients and by the overwhelming majority of patients with good palliative care can achieve a dignified, peaceful and painless death. In my clinical practice, the terminal phase of an illness relates specifically to the last few hours or days of life. And I know that for, for everybody at that stage of their illness, we can make them comfortable because even in the most extreme and dire of circumstances, we could render patients unconscious if that were necessary and keep them comfortable until they died from their underlying disease. There is no need for patients to suffer at the very end of life. What would be gained by legalising assisted suicide for those patients would be a small amount of extra autonomy to choose the hour or the day on which they died, but is that sufficient justification for exposing large numbers of vulnerable patients to increased risk? But perhaps the uh, proponents of assisted dying are not suggesting that we restrict it to people in the last few hours or days of life. Perhaps they're suggesting that we should allow it for people in the last few weeks, months, or years of life. And indeed, uh, in the Netherlands, there is a campaign currently to allow. Uh, euthanasia and assisted dying for the old, uh, the lonely, those who are tired of life. Once you move away from a a close definition of the terminal phase as being the last few hours or days, it becomes an entirely fluid concept altogether. After all, life itself could be considered to be a terminal illness. Moreover, doctors themselves are very poor at prognosticating. In a recent study, doctors were asked to categorise whether patients with advanced cancer would live for weeks, months or years. And they only got their categorisation right in just over 50% of cases. That's slightly better than the toss of a coin. Finally, I think I'm frightened and concerned that if we legalised assisted suicide it would have significant adverse effects on the whole culture and practice of medicine and the trust that we rely on With our vulnerable patients. If it was uh, legal to uh, assist people in their suicide, we would have to treat that as just one other option for patients at the end of life. We would be obliged to discuss, uh, for instance, Mr. Jones, we've diagnosed your advanced cancer, we can offer you chemotherapy, Uh, we could offer you. Good palliative care, but I'm obliged to remind you that you could also avail yourself of an assisted suicide. In a culture like this, how long do you think it would be before the rights of a minority to choose the hour and the day on which they die is transformed into a a duty or at least, at the very least, an expectation or an obligation on the vulnerable majority to accept an assisted death? Thank you for listening. And I look forward to your questions.
2: Patty Stone, thank you very much. Our last speaker in favour of the motion that assisted suicide should be legalised is Mary Warnock. Moral philosopher. She's a former headmistress of Oxford High School and mistress of Girton College, Cambridge. She's long been an outspoken proponent of voluntary euthanasia, and she said she believes it is genuinely wicked of doctors to disregard the wishes of someone who explicitly wishes to die. Baroness Warnock.
6: Thank you very much. It's very difficult to come after all the other speakers because one keeps on thinking of things one wants to change about what one was going to say oneself. And some of the things I have changed, but one thing I haven't changed, I wanted to divide what I was going to say into two parts, one of them concerned with the law, and one of them... Yes, I'm rather short. Um, (laughs) rather than concerned with more perhaps fundamental questions, I feel very hesitant in talking about the law at all in the presence of the formidable uh, um, lawyer we've just heard. But in this country, the law lays down that assisted suicide is a criminal offence. And moreover, the present law has made things worse because it's confused the case of somebody who helps somebody to commit suicide or, if you like, kills them out of compassion and pity and not being able to bear their suffering with those people who on the Internet incite young people to commit suicide together or in droves or with a partner. Now, that seems to me genuinely a terrible offence. But the second thing about the law is that it seems to be saying there is consistent suicide in this country is a criminal offence, but if you go abroad it's okay. Now that is an incredibly legalistic view. It's okay in Switzerland because the law says it's okay in certain circumstances. It's not okay here because the law says that it's not. But surely behind the law that would criminalise assisted suicide is a moral judgement about whether it is, in certain circumstances, right or whether it's never right to help somebody to do what they want to do, which is die when they've had enough. And therefore, I think it trivialises the issue to say it's all right if you go to Switzerland, but not all right here. It's a kind of absurd extension of the concept of not in my backyard. Perfectly all right if you go to Switzerland. Now, I think that is a condition of the law with which we can't ultimately live. We've got to sort things out. And, of course, the other thing that's wrong with the law is that the Director of Public Prosecution's guidelines were directed towards people like Debbie's husband, who will, in the end, when she wants it, help her to die and is laying out the circumstances in which he will escape prosecution. But this has nothing to do and nothing to say about doctors and professional medical people who may feel themselves that it would be morally right to hasten the death of somebody who desperately wants to die because of their pain, discomfort, humiliation, shame, thoroughly feeling fed up with the life they're living. And I don't see any moral justification whatsoever for the moral opinions of one lot of people, namely the doctors and perhaps the lawyers, to override their own moral opinion, which is that they have had enough and it will be right and good, that they should be allowed to die in peace. Now, I think that what I'm asking for is ultimately a change of the law that makes assisted suicide in this kind of case, as well as in the case of Debbie here, um, legal in some situations. But I'm asking first for a change in the attitude of the medical profession. And actually, I think there is evidence that this is gradually coming about. Because I do believe that medical people, for whom on the whole I have the largest, enormous admiration, partly because of being dependent on them, as we all are. But I do have a great admiration for them. But I think that they do believe that their mission, and I use the word advisedly, that their mission is to help people, to make things better for people, to make their lives better rather than worse. And I believe that what we need is a change of attitude in the medical profession which may come to think that living longer is not always in the best interest of the patient. Supposing that the person is, let's say, very old, knows that they maybe have been cured from some disease by drugs and whatnot, but yet knows that they're not really better, they're going to die, and die soon. Could it not become part of the doctor's repertoire to think that how to help that patient, how to make things better for that patient, would be to help her to die, to make things easier, to bring death on rather than constantly hold it at bay? Would this not, perhaps, be the conclusion of compassion. And so what I'm referring to is not anything to do with rights or autonomy. It's not even anything to do with the law because the argument of people, who lawyers and others who are against it is often, but the law would be abused. The horrible predatory relatives would come sweeping in and say, go on, get rid of her, she's she's using up our money, she's using up our time, so on and so forth. Well, of course, there may be horrible, predatory relatives. Any law can be abused. You could refuse to give anyone in childbirth pethidin on the ground, that somebody could give them too much pethidin, and they'd die, or they might become addicted to pethidin and go on taking pethidin for the rest of their lives. Any law can be abused. But that cannot be a reason for not thinking of the moral arguments that lie behind the law and indeed lie behind any law. Baroness
2: and Warner. the law
6: here Baroness is compatible.
2: Thank you very much. Indeed. And our final speaker uh, against changing the law is Richard Harris, Bishop of Oxford for 19 years, familiar to us all from Radio 4's Thought for the Day. He's Gresham Professor of Divinity at King's College London, a man with a passion for social justice. He's currently writing a book entitled Issues of Life and Death. Richard Harris.
7: Good evening, everybody. Like everybody else... Uh, I very much uh, feel for people who are in the grip of irremediable and irreversible uh, suffering. And I really genuinely don't know how I would feel or how I would react if I was in that situation myself suffering from a debilitating illness. Emily earlier on said uh, I would uh, not want to continue living. I can sympathize with that. But if I was in that position, I just simply don't know how I would react. And the reason I mentioned this right at the beginning is to make it clear that I don't approach this debate with any claim uh, to be uh, on the high moral ground or to be some kind of moral hero. Uh, Like every other human being, I'm frail and uh, fearful. Uh, And because others uh, have considered the issue from medical and legal standpoints, I'm going to raise some wider considerations, if I may, about what it really means to be a human being in society. However, once again, I must make it clear that I'm not depending on any moral law against what Hamlet called self-slaughter, nor... Uh, on any idea that it is God and God alone who decides the moment of our death. Those may or may not be good arguments, but I want to make it quite clear those are not the arguments that I am deploying now. What I want to do is to question some all-pervading assumptions in our society as a whole, and particularly in this debate, about what it really means to be human. And I think that the research on what has happened in Oregon is very revealing because it shows that people who take up the option of assisted dying are those who like to be in control of their lives. Those in the age range 18 to 64 are three times more likely to avail themselves of Oregon's Death with Dignity Act than the over 85 group. In short, it is those who have recently led busy professional lives, those who have recently been uh, active in control, who want to choose the moment of their death, and not the most elderly. Now, I'd like to suggest that this picture is, in fact, a very revealing one, and it fits in with what Emily said earlier on, that there is a particular subset of people who want more control over their lives but I think that it reveals three assumptions. First of all, a very individualistic assumption of what it is to be a human being in society. It is, as it were, the lonely individual deciding for him or herself. And it is this view, of course, which has dominated European culture since the 17th century, which is focused particularly uh, in somebody like Kierkegaard. The fact is, however, we're not isolated individuals. And I think the Africans have a much richer and deeper understanding when they talk about Ubuntu. We are persons only in and through our relationship with other uh, persons. Now, the second assumption, which is revealed by the Oregon picture, which I think uh, reveals something about our society, uh, and that is the assumption that it is the ability to control our lives that defines us as human beings. Now, again, I'd like to make it quite clear. I like to be in control of my lives uh, as much as anybody in this room, perhaps even more so. I hate the thought of not being in control uh, of my life. But I have to face the fact that at the beginning of my life I was totally dependent on others. At the very end of my life, I'm inevitably bound to be totally dependent on others. The fact of the matter is that we are interdependent uh, and that... The relationship between being dependent and being interdependent are intertwined and vary greatly during the course of our lives. And it's quite wrong to simply define us as human beings in terms of our ability to control and manipulate our lives. And the third false assumption, which I think is revealed with the Oregon picture... Uh, is that if we actually lose control of our lives and become more dependent on others, somehow we lose our value and dignity as human beings. Now, of course, we don't. Every human being, in whatever state, is of value to be respected and cherished as such. So I want to begin, therefore, by, by asking you, if you would, to, to question uh, the... Widespread assumption in our society, which has really been going since the 17th century, that it is us as lonely individuals in control of our lives who really define what it is to be us. Nevertheless, even if you concede that, you might very rightly say, but there are people who really want to die. This is their considered choice, and they're asking for our help to do so. And, of course, we've heard very, very powerful pleas this evening along those lines. But here again, if I may, I'd like to suggest three points which should make us hesitate very greatly. First of all, of course, it's not always morally right to do what other people ask you to do. I imagine that everybody in this room, if they were faced with a teenager who asked you to help them to die, would refuse. Of course we would refuse. We would s- seek uh, to, to, to help them in some other ways. We would look around for some other way uh, of alleviating their di- distress. And we would regard it as profoundly wrong to help a teenager to kill themselves. But then, all right, suppose someone in a desperate slate bursts out, bursts out, blurts out, as they have done, well, you wouldn't treat a dog like this. You have your dog put down to end their suffering. Why won't you do the same for me? A very heartfelt plea and I I don't in any way question the real pain uh, uh, behind it but the point is quite simply we're not dogs we are human beings when a dog is in great pain at the end of their life the kindest thing you can do is indeed simply to end their pain by putting them down Now, in relation to human beings, of course, we ought to do all we can to relieve a person's pain. And Paddy's told us all that can be uh, done now. And thank God, through the great advances in palliative care, in almost every case it is possible for a person to die uh, peacefully. But the point is that relieving pain is not the only thing which we owe to other human beings in their distress. We want to assure them that they're still of value and that they're still wanted. Now, the great American ethicist Paul Ramsey in his discussion of ending the lives of people uh, diagnosed with permanent vegetative state and other similar conditions suggested it would be right, let us say, to inject a person in that state with a lethal drug if, quote, they are irretrievably inaccessible to human care. But in other circumstances, he said, we should not, quote, hasten them from the here and now in which they still claim a faithful presence from us. I find that a very powerful phrase. We shouldn't hasten them from the here and now in which they still claim a faithful presence for us. So what I'm asking us to do is to question various assumptions which I think permeate this debate and perhaps which are pretty widespread in our society as a whole. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Lord Harries. Question time, then. Keep it brief, if you would, because I'm sure lots of people want to get in. Don't make speeches. Make a point or ask a question, preferably both as quickly as you can. Okay. thank
1: you. Um, My question is, I don't know how many other people in the room have had to make the choice, but I did, and I couldn't, even though I love my husband very much, and I think it's because it shouldn't be up to the family. So I think could there be a law that when that situation does arrive it isn't in the hands of the family? I don't know how many other people have ever had to make that choice for a loved one, but it is incredibly hard.
2: Okay, I'm, I'm just going to take this another question here, another point here, trying to gather you together in bunches so we can get us here as many as we can. Yes, sir, take the microphone if you would. Thank you.
4: I'd like to ask Bishop Harris, he mentioned that... Uh, a driver in a train who's about to be burned to death, you uh, would be permitted to shoot him. Uh, what would the law have to say about that?
2: Well, well, if you, if you don't mind, I'm not going to get us diverted onto that because I think it is actually slightly off the point. There was another, there was another question here. That's it. Well, he can answer it in a minute if you really feel he should, but I, I think it's...
6: Uh, Lord Carlisle, in his very interesting speech, told us a great deal about what the law is, but that is really irrelevant to this debate, which is about what the law ought to be. And and I think Debbie Purdy's example of somebody in insufferable pain which can't be ended does sometimes happen, and plainly that person should be allowed to be killed, not merely starved to death. But I think the speakers for the motion have failed to do something very important, which is to say what the law ought to be. And that has not been defined yet, and I hope perhaps in their closing speeches it will be.
2: Right. Well, let me bring in Alex Carlyle on that, and perhaps you can scoop up the burning lorry driver at the same time.
4: Is this microphone working? Yeah. I can scoop up the first question by saying, I did say what the law ought to be. I said it should remain as it is. And I would, to scoop up a previous question, I would leave the law exactly as it is... Um, in dealing with the uh, driver in the burning cab. It's not that the law should be changed for the driver in the burning cab. Of course the driver would not be prosecuted. We have a benign prosecution process in this country in which a judgment is made by a dual code test which has been recognized time and time again by the courts as having some importance. And I think it's absolutely good enough for the director of public prosecutions to decide not only whether there is evidence, but whether it's in the public interest for the person to be prosecuted. And plainly, the director would decide it was not in the public interest. Now, I didn't quite hear the first question. Well, I'm going to ask
2: Debbie to answer
5: that one. Debbie, the first point was that it shouldn't be up to the family. I agree it shouldn't be up to the family. It should be up to the patient. And I think that what we need to have is as Terry Pratchett talked about, tribunals, when people are still alive, to be able to discuss why they want to die, to give families the opportunity, if somebody thinks they're a burden, so that families have the opportunity of saying, "Auntie May, you're not a burden, we love having you here, so that doctors have got the opportunity of saying that they have a different way of treating people. But if any of those solutions are not sufficient for the patient... The patient should have the right to decide they want to end their lives. And if they can't do that themselves, (coughs) which is often the case, they should be able to ask for assistance. Okay,
2: let's have a point from the front here.
8: Um, A
4: couple of points um, to Debbie Purdy. um, This is a case of one disabled person to another, by the way. Um, Two points. First one, um, you say you want to have autonomy about when you die. Well, with respect, you're not going to have it. Because unless you're planning that automatically anybody who says they want to die, there's no judge or panel to discuss it, which would be a complete nightmare. And I hope you'd agree about that. Then one way or another, somebody's going to be deciding for you. The second point, which I'd like to make slightly ironically, not a dig at intelligence squared, which is how many severely disabled people there are in this room. There are very good reasons for it not being discussed in Parliament, which is that it's based on a false consensus. The, most, the people most immediately affected, severely disabled people, are the very people who are not going to have a voice because they're very ill.
5: Debbie,
2: come back quickly on that, and then I'm going
5: to... say, I think that is completely wrong. The majority of disabled people, like the majority of able-bodied people, support there being a change in the law because we, as disabled people, don't want to relinquish the control we have over, over our own lives. Of course there are elements that we will never have control over, and that's just life. But those which we can, we need to. And my physical disability does not change my ability to make decisions for myself, about myself, and about my own life. And I resent anybody saying that I am... Um, a poor person that somebody else has got to protect and defend. Right, disabled people want to be in control of their own lives and we have a right to have that same control that everybody else has got. This Richard, law does not affect the disabled disproportionately. Richard. <coughs> I'll just say
7: uh, briefly that in the House of Lords there are a number of uh, disabled peers uh, and they are the strongest opponents of attempts to legalise uh, assisted dying, led by uh,
9: Lady Jane Campbell.
2: I'm going to a point from the balcony there, yeah. Um
9: I think that in these debates you often get um, a lot of pressure for the law to be clarified, uh, for it to be codified by, by acts of Parliament. But I think we have a very long tradition in our law of law always being interpreted Um, by the courts and by the Director of Public Prosecutions, and sometimes the pressure to try and clarify everything to the nth degree is actually a damaging um, process to go through it removes flexibility from the law Um, but that does leave one thing that does concern me, does that not put too much power in the hands of one man i.e. or woman uh, it's not in this case uh, the, the Director of Public Prosecution's So are we not in a position where that one man now decides who is prosecuted and who is not? Um, So I I think the clarification of the law ultimately might be a step backwards, but should there not be a a wider process about who decides who is prosecuted under this more flexible position that we currently have?
2: Mary Warnock, too much power in the hands of the DPP.
6: Uh, Well, I think I agree. I feel anxious about that. But uh, there is an area where well, I think the law could be more flexible, and I entirely agree that this is one of the merits of the law, but if the law of homicide were to be changed so that there was no automatic, mandatory life sentence, then I think things would be very much better. I think that if uh, it's a homicide trial, somebody had uh, was, was prosecuted for ending the life of somebody who was terminally ill and who had wanted to end her life. Supposing this husband were prosecuted, then if the jury could say to the judge, we find that there are mitigating circumstances here which would lift the necessity of the life sentence, then I think this would make an enormous difference. And I believe that that might be the way that the law should be changed, to change the law of homicide.
2: Alex Carlisle is whispering to me. He wants to say two tiny sentences. Two
4: tiny sentences. One, I agree entirely with Baroness Warnock. The mandatory life sentence should be removed. I hope the coalition will do it. There's practically no one in the House of Lords who believes it's justified. And the answer to the gentleman in the balcony is, the DPP does not have too much power because he's subject to judicial review and is regularly the subject of actions for judicial review. So his decisions, in the end, are controlled by the judges.
2: Okay, I'm going to a point at the back here, and then I'm coming back up to the balcony. Yeah. Um, Lord Harris, uh, you spoke very
10: movingly about Ubuntu and accompanying our loved ones um, to the end. You are speaking there for my late mother, who, before her catastrophic stroke at the age of 85 had signed a living will and who after the stroke repeatedly begged me to help her to die and I know that no greater act of ubuntu or whatever you like to call it no greater act of love um, could have been than helping her um, to, to have a dignified and peaceful death so are you sure you 're speaking for everyone what what
2: happened in the end what,
10: what, oh, Um, against all prognostications, it took her nearly six years to die and she was lonely even though I was
7: there. Richard Harris. Well, I think I can, I can just simply respect your experience and, and suggest that there are, the, there are other uh, instances. I mean, I think of my own mother, who also had a terrible stroke and couldn't speak properly for the last five or six years of her life. Um... And it was, it was terrible. It was agonizing. But I couldn't say that there were no blessings that came out of it. I couldn't say that. Um,
2: Would she have said that if she could have done?
7: Well, she had a huge will to live. I mean, she was a great fighter. She went on fighting to the end.
2: Paddy Stone, you must see these cases every day of the week. I mean,
0: it's it's obviously... It's always very difficult to comment on individual cases. You know, obviously, everybody's heart goes out to your individual experience here, but I suppose just at one level, it does illustrate slightly that we're meant to be talking here about legalising assisted suicide for the terminally ill. And, you know, what you just presented there was a case of somebody who, who lived for another six years. Was this patient terminally ill? And I think that's the problem is that it's impossible to try to regulate something that says it is just for the terminally ill. Once you start introducing this, it becomes, for anybody who's... I mean, most people who suffer a stroke and survive are disabled. They're not terminally ill.
2: Right, I'm going to go to a point at the back on my left, followed by a point at the back on my right. Sorry if it's going backward a step, but do the... um Against people, then actually think it's right that nobody has yet been prosecuted for taking relatives to Switzerland. You're saying, sorry. so do,
1: do the people who are a, uh, against uh, legalising the assisted suicide think that it's correct that nobody has yet been prosecuted for taking their relatives to Switzerland?
2: Do you do you think it's right that no one has, as so far, been prosecuted for taking their relatives to Switzerland? I think some ninety people or so have taken people to Switzerland and no action has been taken against them, which is exactly, of course, what Debbie had clarified from the DPP.
4: I do not know the facts of a single case that the Director of Public Prosecutions has had to look at. I have not looked at the files that the Director of Public Prosecutions has had to look at. I believe, believe, if I may answer the question without being interrupted, I believe that there are cases in which it may well be right for people to be prosecuted, and I expect, actually, rather more people to be prosecuted than have been in the past as a result of the clarity that is being given to the law as a result of Debbie Purdy's excellent court action. You expect more people to be
2: prosecuted
4: yes, as a result? Yes, I do. Well, you have to take as your starting point when the DPP's policy was put into place. And I believe that the DPP's policy has given a a, a considerable amount of clarity to the law and that as a result, if you read it, you will find that certain people are likely to be prosecuted. For example, people who have a substantial financial gain or people who have put the person who has died under any sort of pressure. But I'm afraid, like everything in the criminal law, every case is different. It's a matter of evidence. But
2: it was clear before, was it not, that anyone who assisted someone to commit suicide was actually contravening the law, yet 90 people have gone uh, to Switzerland and have helped someone commit suicide and they haven't been prosecuted.
4: You're you're, you're actually making a sweeping generalisation, if I may say so, because I don't know what those 90 people did. I don't know if, as a matter of law, for example, helping someone to buy a ticket to go to Switzerland is assisting suicide. As a matter of law, I rather doubt it.
2: In in, in the eyes of the DPP, none of them did anything wrong, it would seem.
4: Well, the DPP judges the cases on the evidence. You know, what's wrong with that?
2: Quick point from Emily here.
3: I would say um, there have been cases where he set out his decision in, ex- in extraordinary detail and booking a ticket does satisfy the evidential burden for assisting. So abs- he said that does, um, but there have been no cases where the public interest has been served. Is there anyone
2: in the room who would like to add a point at this moment to support Alex Carlyle and his arguments? Just put your hands down if you're doing the opposite for a moment. Is there anyone who would like to make a point on this side?
8: Okay. Um, I think it would have been helped, actually, in this debate, had we had more specific proposals from that side uh, for exactly how they would legalize assisted suicide. Generally, the argument in favor of assisted suicide is for the Oregon model, as I understand it, the campaigns for it in this country. Well, in that case, if you are arguing for that, and it would be helpful if you would say if you are, then you really have to um, argue why um, it would not fall into the problem that Dr. Stone has mentioned of where a right to die soon becomes a duty to die. It's not just a matter uh, for Miss Purdy and people like her, it's for those who are much more vulnerable than Miss Purdy. Um, Actually, the Oregon State Public Health Division brings out an annual report every year since the legalisation of assisted suicide in Oregon. In 1998... 13% 13% of all the people who committed assisted suicide uh, did it because they felt there would be a burden on their families. Within 10 years, 2007, this had got more than tripled to 44.9% of people who are committing assisted suicide because they felt they were a burden. Is that really a voluntary autonomous decision? Debbie?
5: The rates of people who use the law in Oregon is around 100 a year. So... It's not like there's a mass number of people who want to end their lives. And a lot of people in Oregon have the ability to then talk to people, talk to their family, talk to their friends, talk to their physicians about their decision to have an assisted death. And quite often, the rates of requesting and gaining assisted death are lower than the rates of suicide in other, um, other states because people are able to explore what other options are available to them. It is too late when somebody is dead to discuss whether or not to prosecute the person who assisted them. We have to do that discussion in advance of somebody dying and the kind of tribunals that Terry Pratchett talked about to explore the opportunities that doctors can alleviate pain, that your social situation can be changed, that family members have the ability to say you're not a burden. That's what we need. Okay, so we have a result,
2: and that is that before the debate, in favour of the motion that assisted suicide should be made legal were 408 people in the room. After the debate, it's 406 people. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Against were 110. Now against, big swing, 208 And the don't-knows have moved from 119 to 34, so some people formed a view this evening. It's all been worthwhile.
1: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now?